When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a black and white picture of my grandfather standing in a machine shop in front of, I think, a lathe of some kind. And he's sort of looking back at the camera and almost smirking a little bit or grinning, sort of the same way I look now, especially now that I accidentally shaved my beard. So uh, my grandfather never had a beard. And so he sort of looks the way I do. If anyone takes a sudden picture of me in front of uh, a bookshelf or uh, a stack of papers that I'm working on, the look is, why are you taking a picture of this? This is just what I do. Um, I think the picture must have been taken when he was in his 60s, uh, late 50s, early 60s. And uh, I never saw the picture until, um, until I was in my 20s. And I only saw it after I began working at that same machine shop. And I only started working there because my uncle uh, had a job there and he got me a job there as well. And I'm pretty sure that he showed me the picture while the two of us were standing in front of that lathe. And it was uh, just a strange thing to see that uh, generations can pass through places like this. I don't think it's uh, still possible now. The last thing I heard, the, the machine shop that I worked at, um, was pretty much close to being closed down. Uh, what had once been a pretty thriving place was, uh, uh, was emptying out quickly. I also remember a guy who worked there, his name was Mike. There are actually two people named Mike in the story, and they are very different, but they make, uh, they help tell my story very well. Uh, the guy named Mike who worked at the machine shop, um, he was one of the ones working at the, the lathes or the drills and all, all, whatever the rest of the stuff was. I have forgotten what most of it was. And you could tell that he was, um, he was aware that he as a person was not terribly educated and he was I wouldn't say ashamed but he was aware of it and aware of it when he was around people that he knew would be able to notice it and of course uh, I had been hired uh, thanks to my uncle's recommendation not to work on the machines but to uh, work with more with the computers and it happened at one point that uh, both this guy Mike who worked on the floor, and me, who worked more with the computers, uh, and a few other people, were selected to go upstairs where the guys in the shirts and ties were. Um, the new breed of machinists, who were uh, the people working upstairs uh, in the shirts and ties, doing AutoCAD, 
and uh, making blueprints and designs on computers that would then help the people downstairs on the machines do their work. Now, none of this, it wasn't uh, real school. You're not getting credit for this class, but we were up there with some of the guys, one of the, some of the programmers, and just learning the basics of what they were doing. And it happened uh, after, I think, maybe a month or two of this. It could have even been uh, a lesser amount of time than that. Uh, the guy who was teaching us the course was the nicest guy in the world. Again, it's not, it's not like we were paying for these courses. This is something they generally wanted people, uh, the owners wanted people to have a general knowledge of this stuff. There wasn't anything uh, very strict or regimented about it. But the guy teaching the class told us, you know, on Monday uh, there will be a test on all this stuff or a quiz or something like that. And it happened that uh, after the weekend, when that day rolled around, uh, that guy, Mike, who um, I'm guessing probably got the job at the machine shop after some looking around, uh, he quit. And the impression was is that he quit because he didn't want to be tested on something that he wasn't able to understand or un he was unable to learn it. And that always struck me as being such a uh, an unfortunate uh, situation because on the other hand I remember spending my time at this place uh, doing very little at all um, at one point uh, actually I think maybe the only winter that I was there my job was to go in the back garage area where nobody else was and there was uh, uh, two levels, there was a little staircase going up, two levels in the garage, and the garage was always open, so it was cold in the winter, where there were old blueprints, old plans, old drawings, and old uh, plastic models of the things that they were designing for machines. And it was my job to create a spreadsheet where people could find these things more easily. Um, I was able to do that fairly quickly, and so my memories of that place are of wearing winter gloves, uh, the lightest winter gloves I could find that would also allow me to turn a page, because the memory I have of that winter is reading Gilgamesh and reading Euripides, uh, five or so pages at a time in between going through these boxes of old plans uh, and old models and old drawings. And I say all of that just as a preface, I guess, to talk about the strange relationship that I've had with work all of my life. Um, I've never really had uh, a meaningful job at all, and I've mentioned in a podcast, uh, in an episode on, uh, I think called, it was called Stubbornness, that in a way I thought that my ability to write would somehow make me a living. Or I thought that even if I didn't have an astounding ability to write, I knew that I did have some kind of ability to write things that could connect with people, or at least were... I, I felt that my sympathy or empathy or my ability to connect with people would eventually yield some kind of a living, not grand riches, but something so that I wouldn't have to work 
at a machine shop or I wouldn't have to work at a Kinko's. Uh, but it turned out that's exactly what I have done. And until my daughter was born, and I've been at home with her for the past almost five years, until my daughter was born, that's basically what I've done. Uh, small, crappy jobs that have never meant very much to me. And I wanted to share, these are just two things um, that tell the story even more. Uh, in a book of mine that I have uh, read from before, called School of Night. Uh, there's a long section in here where the main character is doing what I do, what I have been doing. Uh, he's been at home with his child. And there's a long section about him dealing with the fact that he is now not in that grind anymore, not in the 8 a.m. coffee line grind with everybody else, you know, walking into an office building and seeing the people mopping the floors. Um, or in the case of myself, loading paper into copy machines, or delivering people their mail, or whatever it is. And I just wanted to share two things from that. The first is a poem where this character is lying in bed in the morning, uh, staring at the lamp on the ceiling while he knows that the cars going by him on the street outside are all going to work. And this is that poem. If I lie in bed mornings and look up, there, in the rounded rim of the ceiling lamp, is the quick reflection of everything that goes by. Flash of the yellow school bus, flash of black truck or the neighbor's red car, come through the window and come through the blinds to play above me in the early light. I've been here a decade and never seen this, the passing spectrum of cars off to work, and tired bodies off to make a living now catapulted without their consent onto the rim of a ring on my ceiling. What a vast gulf in their mornings and mine. What a solid wall are my plastic blinds. What a barrier, and how different, is my own jobless mind, and my two eyes that only see a morning color bar whose regular pulse is closer to prayer, a heartbeat of color going past the house while others see office or restaurant, factory glue or the cooking of food or the silent stacking of a bookshelf or the desk that never gets organized. It isn't a problem of planets, no. We don't even occupy the same universe. And this is something I had to come to terms with when I was at home with my daughter. The fact that I never really had a job that meant anything to me but that now suddenly uh, I didn't even have a meaningless job. Um, I didn't have a job that I could complain about. Um, there was a real sense working some of the factory or copy clerk jobs, the Kinko's jobs or the, uh, the back office jobs. Uh, there was a real sense of being in the trenches with these people, knowing that you're not making a bunch of money, knowing that uh, most of the customers you're dealing with are um, uptight and assholes, um, and in many cases they don't need to be, but that's the uh, impression that they feel they need to give. And so uh, that sense of camaraderie was gone, and I had to uh, come to terms with that really. But this is another uh, two little paragraphs here of this character going downtown and 
seeing this. This is what it says. Downtown parked alongside some building that's being renovated. And beside it is a small moving truck that's back door rolled up. Inside is a guy about my age, moving slabs and curls and small piles of something around the back of the truck. He's not even wearing a mask or gloves or goggles. And in the minute I observe him, all I see him doing is rearranging and restacking what must have been old plaster, bits of wall or ceiling. And this is what this guy is living for, what he woke up for, what he was hired to do, the reason he broke his ass on the sidewalk hunting down a job. This is why he was an eight-year-old once, discovering insects or running in the woods. This is why his parents made love one night, so he could grow up and move curled and diseased and water-damaged pieces of old ceiling and wall from one part of the back of a truck to another. End of story. And that is probably uh, as negatively as I have ever put that impulse. Um, and it's just, again, it's hard to come to terms with um, myself as a poet, as a writer. I've been struck uh, by the interviews with Seamus Heaney that I read uh, over the summer, over the spring and summer, where he basically knew right away in his early 20s that poets do not make a living off of poetry. So they teach or in his case, he was lucky enough to become well-known as a poet, and his uh, reviews and his essays were able to bring in some money as well. Um, it's heartened me as well, since I've been reading the letters of Ted Hughes, which I hope to record bits of here later, where he, on the other hand, is always scheming. He always seems to be trying to find a way to make money, and uh, I like seeing that. Um, uh, it's nice to see someone else worrying about those things, because that is also something that I've always, always been worried about. And it struck me, the more that I thought about all of this, is that the two most meaningful things that I ever did do at my jobs, and these were at, at Kinko's, both of these, there was one time when I was working, um, actually it was the fall of it was November, December of 2003, and I was working at a Kinko's uh, near... Uh, just outside of Cleveland, and um, a woman, a middle-aged woman and her mother came into the store and said, uh, uh, the younger woman said that uh, her husband was missing, they hadn't seen him for days, and they wanted to make up uh, missing posters for him, missing signs. And thankfully it was me they ran into, because um, if I had been going by the book, I would have had to have charged them for uh, scanning the photo, typing out the text that they gave me, uh, and uh, I would have had to have charged them the full price for printing the color copies that I gave them, and also the charge for uh, uh, saving what was created onto a CD in case they wanted to print more of them later. And so one of the most meaningful things I ever did was I did all of that and I don't think I charged them for much of anything at all. I may have charged them only the cost for maybe a hundred black and white copies, even though what I gave them was probably 
100 color copies and 100 black and white copies. Um, and the second thing was at a Kinko's in downtown Manhattan where, uh, again, a middle-aged mother comes in and she wanted to make a sign, I believe it was going to be uh, for a memorial for her teenage daughter or her daughter who was a late teens or early 20s. And I got to talking to her and she, I believe her friends or her family were from Iran and she just told me stories about her daughter and one of them I believe was how she was able to send her daughter on a plane to Iran by herself and then to come back and how she did all, did all this by herself at a fairly young age and she was just a creative and warm and uh, loving person and I can't forget I forget how she died but we were there talking for a long time as I was scanning in the pictures that she wanted to be on this poster and out of all of these years I guess there's one more I can think of and that was when an old man who uh, this was also at the Kinko's in New York who happened to be a Hindu came in one day with uh, an old battered copy of the Bhagavad Gita and he wanted me uh, since it was falling apart he wanted me to to cut the spine off of the book and then bind it with a coil so that it would be held together again and it would be easy to turn the pages again and uh, before he left the story that I got from him was that uh, he was retiring now and now he would have time he would devote the rest of his time most of the rest of his life to reading uh, that wonderful Hindu scripture the Bhagavad Gita and those are the things that I remember the most not anything that ever made me any money. It was always the human connection. And so, the in the very last episode here, I read from Studs Terkel's book, Working, an interview that he did with a waitress. And one of the most remarkable things from that book is just one sentence that uh, was told to Studs Terkel by uh, an auto worker, and this is what it says. Every time I see an automobile going down the street, I wonder whether the person driving it realizes the kind of human sacrifice that has to go into the building of that car. And I would just add the word uh, suffering to the word sacrifice, the kind of human sacrifice and human suffering that goes into the making of that car. And so I really don't mean for any of this to be uh, overtly political. I'm not calling for a revolution of any kind. What I'm really trying to get at is I'm thinking about people who have to work and understanding that I have always had an odd relationship, uh, an odd feeling of injustice for why so many people throughout all of history have had to spend so much of their day doing something that they do not want to do uh, in order to do what? Um, I feel it's worth focusing on and talking about a little bit more. Now, you could say that, that what I'm getting at is, okay, you see a car going down the road and you think of the suffering and the sacrifice that it went into that. Uh, 
but you could also be writing down a neighborhood and you could think the same thing about the houses. Uh, especially these days, I think about it when I'm in line at fast food. Uh, the person who is working the window, either of the windows uh, of the drive-through or the cooks. Um, I think about uh, the people who work at restaurants or the bookstores, uh, the uh, grocery stores, all of those small jobs. When I remember, uh, when I think about working in New York City, I recall coming upon people all the time who worked in uh, the offices just down the road and being told a handful of times that they worked in a place and they worked for a company that bought everyone in their company lunch every day. And it struck me, again, not, not in a sense that I actually wanted this to happen or that I believed that someone's wealth should be redistributed in any way. But it was very hard for me not to think that the, that the people who really, <clears throat> if they didn't deserve it, they needed it. If, the people who, if there were people who really needed to have their lunch bought for them every day, um, it wasn't the people in the offices, it was the people at Kinko's. Uh, it was the people who uh, sweep and uh, clean the floors of the offices after Kinko's closes. Um, and again, that's not to say that that would actually ever happen or that I wanted to. It's just a note of having sympathy for people who are actually scrounging and who are actually in need and who may have actually have felt a bit more gratitude for someone buying their lunch every day uh, than the people high up in the offices would have. So that I don't mean that we should uh, weep every time we go to McDonald's or we should regret every time we go to Target or that we should approach people cooking hamburgers or waiting tables or busing tables or whatever it is. I don't think we should treat them like uh, the cliches of, of telling people in the military, thank you for your service. We shouldn't be groveling on the floor telling people, uh, thank you for working these crappy jobs. I just think it's worth being aware of that in a non-ironic, uh, non-cable news, uh, non-radio uh, news kind of way, non Twitter way, non-Facebook way, all of that. Actual sympathy with what's going on. Um, and there is, this, there is this wonderful quote from Primo Levi about, uh, it's actually about the Holocaust, but it gives a sense of just why uh, there is no way for us actually to feel the pain of everyone because we just can't do it. And this is what that says. Uh, a single and frank excites more emotion than the myriads who suffered as she did, but whose image has remained in the shadows. Perhaps it is necessary that it can be so, because if we had to and are able to suffer the sufferings of everyone, we could not live. So, of course, I don't mean that we shouldn't be able to live, that we shouldn't be able to go to the grocery store and that's it. Although in the past year, especially with COVID, it has been very hard for me not to notice one person in particular at our local grocery store who before 2020 uh, 
just seemed like a guy who was about 50-ish or so who just happened to have gotten to a point where he was working at a grocery store again and he didn't really seem like he fit in or wanted to be there but there he was and by late 2021 uh, you can tell that the beard under his mask is just gray and frazzled and that his eyes are more dead and tired than I ever saw them before. It is just worth noticing that. And this comes from, this is one thing uh, that perhaps says it better than I can here. Um, to consider, this is something from an essay that I'll be reading from later, but just this tiny bit says it better than I can probably say it impromptu right now. Consider how many people don't make a living doing something they love. Consider how many people spend eight or more hours a day doing what they would rather not do, or doing what doesn't even get them by, simply to live the remaining hours of the day, many of which are taken up with sleep, day in, day out, for months, years, and decades. And even more, that the jobs we have in corporate or cultural fields in technology and education and retail only feed into the supposed importance and need for what these industries are selling, even though they do not satisfy. The money we earn is given away to pay for movies and music and TV and the internet, whose purveyors do not aspire to improve our lives, but simply to keep us watching, listening, clicking, and buying. Or we pay for, quote, food from companies who do not want us to be healthy, but to continue to eat and eat. And to pay for these things, even more of our money goes to credit card companies and banks that are more profitable the more irresponsible and in debt we are. And to help all of this along are advertisers, who again have no desire to improve our lives, but actually to make them worse, to create new needs and desires where previously there were none. Now, for me, anyway, that last paragraph uh, is not political at all. I don't think there's anything political in saying or in pointing out the strangeness of people. Millions of people all throughout history, all the nameless billions of people that whose names will never appear in a history book, um, breaking their backs to in order to pay for something that someone else is working to break their back at. It's a very strange cycle. I don't think it's political to talk about the fact that the people, many of the people who make movies or make music or make TV shows or who are behind everything on the internet, um, I don't think it's a political thing to say that they don't actually care about people they don't actually care about us. I don't think it's a political thing to say that uh, many of the companies we buy food from don't care about us, that they want us to be uh, addicted, in many cases, to the crap that they're making. And I don't think it's a political thing to say that uh, banks are more profitable the more irresponsible and in debt we are, because that's the truth. And um, I don't think it's political to take those points and just think, at least just in America, the, the most prosperous place in the world, 
and just think of the people underneath all of that. What, uh, this is the second guy named Mike. Uh, I worked with another guy named Mike at Kinko's, uh, or another guy named Mike, and this one was uh, at a Kinko's. And he worked one of the most brutal shifts that I can imagine, and I still have really no idea how he did it. Uh, he worked from noon to noon, Friday, Saturday, or not noon to noon, um, sorry, from, uh, I believe it was six in the morning, yes, that's what it was, six at night to six in the morning, uh, Thursday into Friday, Friday into Saturday, Saturday into Sunday. And this guy was immensely educated. I forget which school he was going to, but he was working to pay, I believe, for a PhD. And um, so you could say it on the complete opposite end of the other mic that I mentioned, and yet I think of them together very often. And I remember saying once to him, uh, before I had the chance to catch my tongue, because I never heard of him dating anyone or living with anyone or really having many friends. It's possible he just kept all of that out uh, of his work life. But I remember telling him, I can't imagine working here uh, every day, let alone those uh, three 12-hour shifts, three days and three nights in a row, if I wasn't going to meet my wife after work each night and go home with her. And I held my tongue. I wish I hadn't said it because I never, I imagine that, that is not what he was doing. And I still have no idea uh, how he did what he did. Um, and so I come to a quote from a rabbi from the Talmud. And this is another sense of sympathy, how to have sympathy. He says, how much labor Adam must have expended before he obtained bread to eat. He plowed, sowed, reaped, piled up the sheaves, threshed, winnowed, and selected the ears, sifted the flour, kneaded and baked, and after that he ate. Whereas I get up in the morning and find all of this prepared for me. And how much labor must Adam have expended before he obtained a garment to wear? He sheared, washed the wool, combed, spun, wove, and after that he obtained a garment to wear, whereas I get up in the morning and find all this prepared for me. All artisans attend and come to the door of my house, and I get up and find all these things before me. And because he finds all of these things before him, he is able to uh, contribute to what becomes the Talmud, and he is able to study Torah and figure out what rabbinic Judaism will become. Now, now you don't have to believe that Adam ever existed to see what I'm getting at here. Sympathy. Sympathy with people doing work. I, uh, that's basically it. And this has all been just a prologue, really, to uh, two or three things that I've noticed recently. The first is uh, comes from an article. I won't uh, name the writer or where it comes from. If you, re if you really want to, you could probably find it on Google quickly. Um, but this is after Jeff Bezos and, and pals ended up going into space. And this is just uh, three short paragraphs from the beginning of this article. Here with a friendly reminder that Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson owe you nothing. 
That's right, nothing. Nada, zip, zero, nil, bubkas. In the last two weeks, both Branson and Bezos have each been flown into space by the private exploration companies they own. Since then, I have read complaint after complaint about their endeavors. It's grotesque. It's selfish. It's narcissism. Why don't they fix the problems on Earth? Sure, they could do that if they want to, but if they don't, that's fine too. The thing is, and this seems to be the part that far too many people seem to struggle with, it's their money. It's not your money. It's theirs. And you don't get a say in how they spend it. And the rest of the article sounds exactly like that. And I agree with that. Uh, that is all true. Um, but since this person is writing for a magazine, and since uh, the magazine is probably mostly read online these days, and since this is the tone that people have to have online if you want to be read at all, especially in the political sense, um, they're just it just seems impossible to sympathize with people who might see this as something grotesque or unfortunate. I mean, you could say, at the very least, uh, I agree, these people should be allowed to spend the money that they have made in whatever way they want, but at the same time, maybe we should mourn a little bit, mourn the fact that this is the only way that we have been able to get things done. That is, for a great, great many people to have nearly all of the money and all of the influence and all of the power, and for everyone else to be, if not scraping by, at least something very near to that. Um, I don't know why you couldn't say, well, I do know why you can't say both of those things, um, in the same article because you're not supposed to uh, challenge people uh, to think very much at all. Um, and then uh, I found the same writer, and this is really this is really what I'm getting at. Uh, I found the same writer responding to uh, what was going on over the summer and is still sort of happening now, where there was uh, a great need. Uh, uh, gr uh, a great number of openings in the job market that people were not willing to fill. And the story was, and it could be true, I, I, it doesn't really matter to me whether it's true or not, but the story was is that people were making more money uh, staying at home from government assistance than they would make working a job. And so they weren't going to go back to working their job until that money uh, dried up. And this same writer who wrote this uh, had a, a three or four line article, if you call it an article, saying, I agree with my friend in this other article that people should basically go out and get a job. And his exact words were, go and get a job, you ridiculous slackers. Now, again, uh, sympathy, empathy, uh, considering what another kind of life might be. Now, um, I'm not holding myself up as any kind of exemplar of sympathy or empathy, but I do think it needs to be said. 
um, in the same way, in the same breath that I came across uh, a pop star the other day talking about uh, their divorce and uh, their new record that was coming out and how they were able to start a family, but then they got a divorce and they're just trying to figure things out. And this person said, I've been on my journey to find my true happiness ever since. And it just struck me how, not that this person shouldn't have said what they did, but just how few people ever, ever have been able to say a thing like that and actually do it. So when it comes down to the people who may or may not have been staying at home and getting their benefits, getting their, uh, their stimulus checks or the money from COVID relief or whatever it is, uh, rather than going out and working, um, I can think of the restaurant my wife and daughter and I like to go to, and we have to wait a little longer to get seated, and we have to wait a little longer to get our food, and uh, I don't care. I don't mind one bit, and I don't mind tipping them more than I, we usually would um, for me. And I mean this sincerely. Uh, you look at the fact that so very little, uh, so very little success these days appears to be based on actual merit or talent. Um, if it isn't based on the people you know, or isn't based on the money that you have or can expend on something, uh, it's very close to, it, it's hard not to think that it's a majority of the time. Um, seeing that that's the case, seeing the recent story about the Pandora Papers coming out, seeing the fact that anyone with money can uh, get assistance with school or uh, get a good lawyer, all of these things. can uh, Anyone with money can have access to the lawyers that can help them, uh, if not break the law with taxes, finagle the law with taxes, all of this stuff. Something that normal people, normal, everyday, uh, working people would never have the knowledge of or the ability to do themselves. I say let them stay at home for as long as they would like, as long as the money is there. There is such, uh, there is such a sense that if there is a real divide in the world, uh, it is by class. It is the, the, the matter of money, of livability, of decency, of meaning where people have no way to have a job that means anything to them in their lives. Um, and so there is a great, if you want to think of where all of the anger, a lot of the anger comes from in the world, it does seem to come from a reality, uh, a very obvious reality that the deck is stacked, not in the sense of elections being rigged, 
not in the sense of huge conspiracies that can overturn the way we look at history or anything like that, but just in the sense of the fact that someone has to wake up and go and do something that they don't want to do, while others who have more than they do by good or bad means has a way of slipping by that process. And so I think, let them stay at home as long as they would like. And if they think that that is the best way that they can game the system in their lives, let them do it. Um, and I really only have uh, sympathy for that point of view. Um, that's not a grand end to this, but that is really what I was working up to. Very strange, lifelong uh, thoughts about work, and that is really where they have ended up. And I hope this has made some sort of sense on a Sunday night. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.